and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? How many innings are in an outing? I don't know what's going on with major league stuff. We're going to get into that later when we introduce our amazing guest. But before that, I want to make sure you know what this is and who the other voices are. This is, as always, a sustained podcast talking about sustaining stuff. On this podcast, as a host, we have Justin Dorfman today calling in from L.A. Justin, how are you doing? How are you? I'm doing really good. I'm calling in from Colorado. I don't know why someone saved me. Ben Nichols, how are you doing? I'm confused because I thought you were talking about cricket for a minute and then I realized, of course, America, baseball. Yes, it is a different sport. And joining us today to talk about the greater sport of baseball, actually nothing to do with baseball, we have two co-founders of Major League Hacking. Super excited. We have John Gottfried calling in from New York. Hello, John. How are you? Hello, hello. Good to be here, Richard. It's good to have you. And we also have Mike Swift, a.k.a. Just Swift, calling in from New York as well. Swift, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited to be here. And I'm excited to talk about coding and maybe some sports ball references in there as well, it sounds like. Maybe. I just think, like, every time I see Major League Hacking, I'm like, is this a baseball thing or a hacking thing? Why don't we start there? What is Major League Hacking? How did you found it? What's his history? So John and I both had very roundabout journeys into tech. I will give my very abbreviated version of this and have John introduce himself to this narrative. But back when I was in high school, I had never thought about being a programmer. I actually really wanted to be a lawyer desperately. And I don't think I actually knew anybody who was a programmer either at the time. But back then I'd been running a small landscaping company in my you know, hometown, pay my bills and have some spending money and things like that. Time came to go off to university and I realized that I needed a new job. Can't really bring a lawnmower to a dorm room after all. So I did the thing that any enterprising young university student would do. I went on the job board for the school, sorted the jobs by how much they paid. And I applied for all the jobs that paid the most, thinking that was a really great strategy. Uh, of course, no one wrote me back, save one company who, in hindsight, must have been desperate because they literally reached out to me about a coding job as somebody who had never coded a computer before in life. Not only that, but to write accounting software for the company as the only programmer in PHP. And so I went in and I told them that I didn't know how to code, but I was a hard worker and willing to learn. And they handed me a Sam's Teacher Self a PHP in 21 Days book and said I had a job. And I started coming in every day, learning how to code on my own. But I never really told anybody about that. For about two years, kept it entirely myself. Like I said, I really wanted to be a lawyer at the time. And through a fluke, a friend of mine found out that I programmed. And he came running to my room one day and he said, hey, I'm going to this thing called a hackathon. You've got to come with me. And I'd never heard of a hackathon before. I had no idea what it was. It sounded like something that elite programmers do, getting together to write software for fun. I couldn't believe it. I felt like I was going to be a complete imposter. But he convinced me to go. And I walked into this room where you know, there was 100 other students who had given up their weekend of doing all the things university students do to come back to campus, come up with these crazy ideas for inventions and bring them to life. And I remember going home the next day and literally looking at myself in the mirror and saying, that was the greatest experience I ever had. And I forget being about a lawyer, I need to be a programmer. And so the next day I switched my major to computer science and I really quickly figured out that the things you learn in a computer science classroom are not actually the things you need to be employable as a software engineer at all. It's a lot of great theory, a lot of things that help you once you have the job, but you don't really learn how to solve problems with code in class. That's the stuff I was learning on my own at hackathons. And that's what led me to major league hacking because I quickly realized that I was not the only one going through that same experience gap. And really every single new programmer coming online, no matter where they are in the world, struggles with that same 
the set of skills they need to develop, the network they need to help them in that journey. And we started Major League Hacking to help all of them get started in tech and have the same opportunities that John and I had along the way as well. That is an amazing story. I love it. I love that just being given a book and being like, here you go. That's pretty similar, I think, in some ways to my story. So I'm just really grateful to hear that. And it's awesome that you like hackathons and decided to, to share that knowledge with other people. John, how did you get involved? So similar zigzaggy path. I was actually really into programming when I was a kid and I spent a lot of time working on these games called MUDs. I don't know if I'm like aging myself or yep. anything by talking about that, but the one I worked on as a kid is still around. It's very popular. It's Star Wars based. And I basically taught myself C by like copying and pasting people's code and trying to like build features in this game. And similar to Swift, didn't know anyone else who was a programmer except for strangers on IRC. And when I went off to college, I actually did start out majoring in computer science and realized really quickly that I hated it and that all of the things that I enjoyed about building software were, as far as I could tell, completely unrelated to a lot of the theory I was learning in class. And so I pulled a full 180 and decided to become a high school history teacher. And I switched majors to history. Absolutely loved it. I really enjoyed all of the different aspects of it. And I got to a kind of a point in my college career where I realized that I was broken and couldn't do anything fun. And so I decided to put my programming skills to good use. But around the same time, and this is kind of like the weird serendipity of life, I got mono like many college students do. And I felt terrible. And I took a semester off and I went back home to suburban New York in my parents' house and once I felt better, I realized that like I was bored out of my mind and all of my friends were gone. And so I went on Craigslist and started applying for programming jobs, right? Which was kind of a process I had started a couple of months earlier. And I found a ed tech company a block from my parents' house in like a random town in upstate New York. I applied for the job on Craigslist, got an interview, went to work there. And a lot of the people who were working there had just started getting involved with like the early days of the New York City tech scene. And we would like take basically like a Greyhound bus into the city and go to meetups and stuff. And through that, I also got dragged along to my first hackathon. And I realized that it was this really kind of like novel group of people who were not really what I assumed programmers to be like. Like I really had the stereotype that people were like the movie Office Space where they kind of sat in a cubicle and hated their lives. But it was this like really eclectic group of like, musicians and programmers and like crazy, like funky hardware hackers who were just like building cool stuff because they enjoyed it. And that really like drew me back in and, and really made me passionate about like the community side of tech. And I, I still graduated with a history degree, but I immediately had a path forward to like meeting people and building connections with people. And it wasn't all about computers, but everyone like shared that passion. And I don't know, it was a really important moment because it helped me understand that people could kind of use technology as a means to an end and that they could have other interests and other passions. And it wasn't all about this kind of like monolithic pursuit of tech for tech's sake. And it was definitely a zigzaggy path to become a programmer and kind of get into the industry. But once I got there, I, I really you know, wanted to help other people find their own path as well, right? Which is what eventually led us to MLH. Also love that. I really liked that both of you when asked, like, what is Major League Hacking? Talk about your own stories and how you got into it with such depth, because it shows that you're really aware that early career people like often don't know what it looks like. And so you're really 
that's at the tip of your tongue. It's right there because you want to be able to teach early career programmers what it's like to become someone in this industry. So MLH, Major League Hockey, is now a major thing. You have tons and tons of events. I think it says here 100,000 developers every year go to Major League Hacking events. That is awesome. That is really cool. Helping people learn how to program, helping people learn how to develop those soft skills that we don't talk about as much as we need to in the industry. I'm going to go a bit deeper into one part of that, which is neither of you have mentioned open source very much so far. <laughs> Can you tell me why open source is imperative towards teaching those skills for new programmers? I actually feel like we can also back up and give you like the elevator pitch of what MLH is, right? Because our story That'd be great. Our stories are the philosophy behind it, but not the the tactical element. Major League Hacking at its core is the global community for early career developers. We help people learn through a variety of different extracurricular programs that help them bridge that gap from a lot of the theory they learn in class to actual practical applied skills in the real world. Those programs are hackathons, meetups, conferences, clubs on campus, as well as our sort of flagship educational program, which is the MLH Fellowship, which is a perfect segue to how this ties back into open source because, and we'll talk a little bit more about what it is, but like a lot of developers start to hone their skills through open source. However, open source is a little scary to get involved with for the first time. There's a lot of context and a lot of depth of knowledge you have to have to really be a contributor. And what we found is a massive portion of our community, which, as you mentioned, is in the hundreds of thousands of people, wanted to do open source, but didn't understand how to do open source. And none of their professors or classmates understood how to either. And I'll let Swift tell the story of the inception of the fellowship, but it really grew out of a need that we saw within our community over, over the last couple of years. What's really interesting, right, is John and I both share personal stories about how these types of events, this type of community, you know, changed both of our lives. And you hear hundreds of thousands of people and you're like, oh yeah, like that's, that's a large community. But the thing that really puts into perspective for me is Something like one in every three new programmers coming online in the United States this year are alumni of our community at this point. And that should speak to the scale of this problem, right? Like this is not something that is niche and few and far to be between, but literally every single new technologist goes to the same gap of trying to figure out how to take the things they conceptually understand and actually be able to solve that and apply real problems, you know? And I think the fellowship really speaks to that too, because you got to roll back the clock a little bit, like right at the beginning of the pandemic and the major league hacking community to this point had been historically entirely driven by in-person events experiences and things were changing, right? Like our community was not able to gather in person. I think in 2019, we had something like 1400 in-person events globally in the past 12 months during that year. And we started hearing from literally tens of thousands of people in our community telling us that not only were they losing these in-person experiences on campus that MLH was helping to create, but now their summer jobs and internships were also collapsing out from under right beneath them as well. I think all told something like 40,000 people in our community lost a job or an internship during the summer of 2020 due to COVID. So we put our heads together, you know, with some of our close partners like GitHub, like Facebook, like Amazon, uh, to come up with a program where we could actually help those students who you know had lost those opportunities they were counting on to actually be able to apply themselves working on something that was 
production quality that made a tremendous impact on their career and other developers around the world. And we thought that the best vehicle for that was open source, because as Sean said, you know, when we talk to our community, there is a massive interest in getting involved in in open source. Something like 90% of the developers in our community say that open source is important to them in their career, Um, but only a fraction of them, less than 20% have actually even managed to go and contribute to open source. And so by creating a 12 week fellowship program where they could learn to contribute open source with other developers under the guidance of expert mentors, and we were able to create a system that enabled hundreds of people to come in, get exposed to open source, learn the best practices of what it meant to be a great open source citizen, and then walk away at the end of that 12 weeks with a major contribution to an open source project that's used by thousands or millions of end users around the world afterwards. It's been incredibly spectacular to see the results of this program. I think a pretty good heuristic that John and I think about whenever we're launching new things like this is if we would have wanted to do it when we were just getting started in our career in tech, it's usually a pretty good signal. I still want to do it to this day. So I think it's even better signal that something really compelling. But yeah, I mean, my journey into open source was really rough. It took me a long time to get started. And I got very lucky. A few people took me under my wing and we're helping to create a program and a pathway for any developer to be able to get started in open source and have that network and, you know, the educational resources to support them in that journey. That sounds absolutely amazing. And I wonder, can you talk a bit about the selection process in terms of the projects that people are contributing to on the fellowship program? Because it feels like it's not only a bunch of experiences from the people participating in those programs that can benefit those particular projects, but also general guidance and how to set yourselves up to attract those kinds of new contributors and the kinds of things that you can do to make that a smooth experience for people coming into a project that might really benefit people who are maybe looking for new contributors or maybe even to kind of grow some new maintainers to share their responsibilities with in the future. So we basically have a pool of different projects that we match fellows to every single cohort. And we do three cohorts a year, spring, fall, and summer. Those projects are a mix of invited open source maintainers, as well as company-sponsored projects. It's kind of an interesting mix because you get this really wide variety of topics and technologies that people end up working on. We've seen everything from core libraries that are used by millions of developers all the way through a really niche plugin or use case that is just like a core feature for one important application. And those two situations often provide equally valuable learning experiences. And I've kind of like started to distill it down to, I don't know, like one like pedagogical thesis, which is that when you're a early career developer, one of the most important things you can learn is how to familiarize yourself with a code base you haven't seen before and get up to speed on contributing. And for many people, that happens when they get their first internship or job with closed source software, reading all the docs, making their first pull request internally. But you can learn the same thing through an established open source project. And so we find this mix of projects really beneficial. To give you an example of a couple of projects, like we have people contributing to Flask. We have people contributing to a bunch of stuff in the React ecosystem. We've had people contributing to like Jupyter and Jupyter Lab. Yeah, it's this really wide variety of really interesting projects. And I would say the main criteria for bringing in projects is that the maintainers themselves 
are excited and passionate about working with early career developers and contributors. And it's certainly not a zero time commitment thing for them to be involved with, but it is a, a pretty minimal time commitment because we have our own structure of mentors and educators and program staff who sort of shepherd people along this journey. And the maintainers end up coming back to us and really having an incredible experience. And many of them we've been working with for you know years now. The other thing I want to throw in here is I think this unintuitive secret that makes a lot of, of sense when you think about it, but may not be an obvious component of something like open source. Imagine you're hiring a new developer and your stack in the front end is React. And you can find all kinds of people who have used React in a personal project. They have gone through tutorials. Maybe they've done some projects in it. How hard is it to find somebody who's actually written code that's been contributing to the React core code base that you and your team are already using in production? That's like one of the greatest resume boosts you could ever ask for is an early career technologist. And I think if we can align the skills that employers want to see with the open source technologies that need support and that we all depend on every single day as a winning recipe for us, not only finding an amazing talent pipeline that can span the entire world and has a meaningful impact on all of us every day through those contributions, but it also helps ensure that there's a sustainable ecosystem around open source. It's more approachable and that the generation of developers that we're all going to be depending on in the future already have open source as part of their native language that they're using every single day. Yeah. And the coolest thing about it is that like when they're interviewing for jobs, fellows can literally show someone the code they worked on, right? Which is never true of a closed source internship where they can talk about it in generalities, right? Which is super different. And honestly, for people who like don't go to top tier schools or don't live in a country that's like highly desirable from a hiring perspective, that really does set them apart is being able to point to something they built. Take this a step further. Mike McQuaid, who basically founded Homebrew, has a really interesting post which says, stop helping first-time contributors. This is back from 2019. I'm thinking about the process of mentoring new contributors to start contributing meaningful contributions. And that's great. And that's awesome. And I love it. And thank you so much for going into depth about that. What happens on the other side? What happens when they either get the job and then can't do open source anymore because that's doing it in their weekends and it's not paid or they have something else going on like a kid, right? A lot of open source happens by people who look like most of the people in this room, privileged white dudes who have the time and ability to do this sort of work. How are you helping these new beginners learn about the necessities and obligations of open source and that it's not just about your passion project, but about keeping that fire burning in the long run. And how are you helping the maintainers not burn out by spending all this energy on first-time contributors who may or may not stick around after they've learned how to help? Yeah, it's a really good question, right? And I think the sustainability of bringing new people into the ecosystem is actually the, you know, the question at the heart of it, right? Which is, is there a way that we, as a community around open source, can create sustainable pathways that don't ultimately net out in burnout among maintainers, constant churn of, of developers and, and so on down the line. And I think that our strategy in general has been a couple of things. First of all, everything that we do at Major League Hacking is revolved around, revolving around community. Imagine you want to work on a personal project. You could, in your free time at home, come up with a side project idea and hack on something, publish on the internet. All your code can be open source. That can be an extremely solitary journey, right? Honestly, it, it can be really difficult to find the motivation to keep working on a side project when you know, you're by yourself doing it. 
hackathons create an ecosystem where you can have a positive experience going through building a side project in a community of other people who are also going through that same journey and can support you along that journey and help make sure that you actually are successful at the end of it. With open source and getting people into the ecosystem, it's one thing to help somebody make their first contribution and you know provide the feedback on their pull requests or point them in the right direction. It's another thing to help them build a network of other developers who also enjoy contributing to open source and help motivate them to stay involved in that community too. So that's one thing is start with community. I think the second thing to your point around increasing the diversity in open source and helping to bring new contributors who might not otherwise you know, have found their way to open source also starts with community in some way too. And we've been incredibly privileged at Major League Hacking to have built an, an incredibly diverse community that's significantly more diverse than what you would find in a typical computer science classroom. Gender is one metric here, but in a typical computer science classroom, about 18% of enrolled students identify as non-male. Um, in the major league hacking community, it's something between 40 and 45% identify as non-male. So more than double what you'd find in a computer science classroom. And we see similar gains across race and ethnicity, socioeconomic background, type of educational institution, you name it, right? And that's because we have built this large global community that is driven by people bringing their friends out, helping to create pathways for them to not only follow in somebody's footsteps, but also feel like they can get started with things that are frankly often unapproachable unless you're in a supportive environment like the ones that we created at MLH. Um, and then I think the last bit about it is helping to foster a culture of coming back and staying involved. And I think that's really important. A lot of the staff that we have in part of the fellowship and also in part of our hackathons are often alumni of our community who had life-changing experiences the same way that John and I did and are now coming back to mentor, to do code reviews, to give talks, whatever it might be. And when you know, you're going through a program like this and the person who's there guiding you is somebody who literally went through it themselves six months ago and is now showing you an aspirational pathway that you can follow, it's a really powerful effect. And, and I do think that we can help build a culture around staying involved and keeping people focused on that. The last thing I do want to throw in there, and I think it's a really important distinction, John touched on it a little bit earlier, but I, I do think it's a key one, is a lot of programs that revolve around mentoring new developers, the open source ecosystem, put all of the onus on the maintainer to do that relationship. And it can be extremely expensive, both from a time perspective, as well as the context building opportunity cost of bringing a new contributor online. One of the major benefits of having programs that who not only develop expertise on the open source projects themselves, but also build curriculum and structure around this journey of going from zero to active contributor. It takes a lot of that pressure off the maintainers. And I think ultimately helps reduce burnout and ultimately helps ensure that they don't feel like they're turning their wheels in the mud and getting nowhere by onboarding up new people because we're able to make that lift so much lower than they would be able to do on their own or through other programs that push a lot of that onto the maintainers, frankly. Yeah, and I actually want to add a really tactical element to what you were talking about, Richard. And this is something that comes up all the time is, will these people continue contributing to my project? And ironically, Mike was one of the first maintainers that we did work with on the fellowship. And I've read that post before. And it's not actually about not mentoring first-time contributors, right? Like, that's a good clickbaity title. It's really about not using that as your only strategy for building a good pipeline of newcomers, right? It's about processizing it and creating 
documentation and onboarding paths for people. And I think that what we've seen in reality in our program is that most of the people are not going to keep contributing to the same projects they worked on forever. That's kind of an unrealistic expectation. What does happen is they build the muscle and the familiarity with how to learn a new open source code base and the comfort level to actually contribute to it. And in all likelihood, their job is not going to be a full-time job working on open source when they go into the industry. However, they now have that confidence where when their company is using a project that depends on open source, they can go in and fix the, the problems that everyone's having, right? And, and actually work on issues in a meaningful way and do that as part of their job because not everyone's going to want to do this as a side project. Not everyone has that luxury. But once they know how, it becomes much more accessible and does become a repeated habit over time across a wide variety of projects. And I actually think that's the, one of the most important skills to build as a new developer is just your willingness to actually get involved and help people fix these problems. And often that is the seed for future maintainers or future open source projects. If people who have had that experience understand what it's like and are familiar enough to replicate it. One of the things that happened in March of 2020, a lot of emotions and a lot of, oh my God, what is going to happen to everything? And for those who don't know, I've worked with MLH in the past on sponsorship deals and this and that. One of the things I was thinking is like, what is going to happen to MLH? The fact that you're still here in 2022, how were you feeling when the whole pandemic first started? And how did you get to 2022? What were the transitions you had to make? Because obviously it had to be pretty drastic. It was scary. It was really scary is the honest truth, right? I don't know how else to say that, but you know, it was a lot of uncertainty. I think, as I said, we were a hundred percent driven by in-person events and gathering people in physical spaces that were large and had hundreds of people from many different schools all in the same spot. And there's a lot of power in those experiences. They're obviously not uh, feasible or haven't been for the last several years. And it required us to completely reinvent everything we were doing at MLH. I think the secret of it all though is for years, if people would describe MLH as a hackathon company, I'd always say, we're not a hackathon company. Our job is to empower the next generation developers and help them watch their careers. The main way we do that right now is hackathons and is events. But as our community changes and as their needs change, we will change with them to be there supporting them on that journey in whatever way it makes sense for the community. And over the years, that's certainly evolved, right? We went from doing just hackathons to supporting workshops and conferences and other types of events. And today we now have the fellowship program, which has become a, a massive part of MLH's overall business. And I think that they're just different ways of helping people go from zero to one. It's really about helping people find that opportunity for applied experience. And when we were trying to figure out what we were going to do, we did exactly what I would advocate for anybody else in our situation to do, which is go and talk to our community, listen to what they have to say and what they're looking for. And when you have 10,000, 20,000, 40,000 people emailing you because there's something going wrong in their life and they want your help. And those same people are emailing you and saying, Hey, I feel like now that I can't go to hackathons, like something is legitimately missing from my journey here and, and I'm not getting what I need. It's both a good signal that you have something that really is working, but also it can be a really strong guiding function to help you find the things that, you know, ultimately wanted to do. And our community mobilized around doing digital events. They mobilized around the fellowship. 
I think for that first fellowship class, we must have had 20,000 applications from developers in our community to go through that program. It was no small amount of interest. I think, yeah, it, it was all about listening. It was all about being open. We completely reinvented everything about what we did. And as you said, we're alive and kicking and honestly bigger and stronger than ever. And I think that's great. And I think the needs of an early career technologist do not go away just because this pandemic. And we as MLH have an obligation to keep supporting them on that journey in whatever way we can. Love it. Now, John, how did you feel? So for context, I work on a lot of our corporate partnerships and anyone, and I imagine a lot of the people who listen to this, like, are somewhat involved with communities or foundations or organizations that depend on those types of partnerships. What we found is that because the need from the community to gather and have social interactions around technology and learning did not go away, that the ability for companies to interact with them also did not go away. People did have to change how they thought about it and what their strategies were and how they approach being involved with the community. Because it wasn't about having a table on a hackathon or a conference and having these really nice serendipitous interactions with people anymore. It was more about how do you create an engaging virtual workshop? How do you have asynchronous discussions with people? How do you foster learning through things like tutorials or screencasts or live coding? People really did have to change how they thought about it. But none of it went away, right? Like the need didn't just disappear overnight. Maybe the strategy has changed, but I was certainly scared in the first handful of months, but I was definitely like reassured by many of the conversations I had with people at developer relations teams or open source program offices that we worked with, where I would get on Zoom with them and say, hey, like, what are y'all doing? Like, how are you thinking about this? Like, how can we keep working together? You know, their main response was like, we're all figuring it out together. And I think that has, I don't know, like it's really strengthened a lot of the relationships we've had. It's really strengthened a lot of the programs that people have had. It's certainly not been an easy road, but it's worked. And in the last year, a lot of the changes that we've seen in virtual events and and sort of how people gather have actually been incredibly beneficial for a lot of people. And I think even once we get back to some semblance of normalcy where we can gather in person, I think that digital events are not going away and that there's a level of accessibility and especially global accessibility that is incredibly important. And I think that in-person and virtual gatherings will have to coexist because they serve different needs. Now, with that said, the future of events, I've read different takes here and there. Some people are burnt out on digital or not in-person events. Honestly, I've been talking to a lot of event people and I see kind of like a hybrid approach going forward. What's your take on that? What do you see? So for years, MLH had a hybrid remote in-person team. So forgetting our events for a second, but we had our headquarters in New York. We had a small office in London, a handful of people, and we had one or two remote people over on the West Coast in California and Seattle. And the biggest challenge that we would encounter as the team was growing is that there'd be a group of us in person somewhere, whether it was in London or New York or wherever, we'd have a conversation and then we would incur this tremendous overhead of having to work on figuring out how to communicate all the decisions that got made and what happened to everybody who wasn't physically in that room. When you have a fully remote team, that kind of asynchronous communication that's widespread is default, it's part of your behavior. And when you have a team that's 100% in person, you don't need to incur that cost. Those same costs that we've been dealing with remote work apply to events as well. 
there is a tremendous cost for an organizer to both have to work with an in-person audience as well as a digital remote audience. And the best thing you can do is probably separate responsibilities and treat them as two separate events that you're actually organizing simultaneously. And in fact, some of the best conferences that I've been to that have had both in-person and remote elements to it, have literally treated them almost effectively as two separate events that happen to share some level of the same content. Similarly, anytime you're trying to create experiences between people in person and people remote, there are recipes for failure that are going to come up frequently, right? And so again, just really focusing on serving the audience that you're focused on in that moment is probably the key. For us at MLH, we, you know, at MLH will probably steer away from hybrid events in the long term. I think for now, other, you know, and frankly, an undeniable part of the transition, right? It's going to have to be, there's going to be a period where we have to do both. I think long term, the best thing we can do is really figure out how to build best practice around those in-person events, build best practices around those virtual events, treat them as two separate but related opportunities. And, you know, really just try not to incur as much overhead and communication and dealing with multiple things going on at the same time. But I'm a believer that it's a transitional thing. And then eventually we're going to get to the point where we had to have both in-person and virtual events. And that will be the thing to do today. What do you think is still missing from things like the fellowship program and potentially some of the digital events? And I say that as currently a group of software developers who don't develop software on a daily basis. And for me, a lot of the benefit, I think, of participating in those hackathon events are having concrete potential problems that you are looking at solving together. Whereas often when we're kind of talking about open source, we're talking about infrastructure and those users are potentially like abstracted away a little bit. So do you think that there is anything that's currently kind of missing either from the fellowship or from some of the more digital events that have that kind of focus? And what direction do you think you might be able to go to address some of that? It's really hard to know what challenges we're seeing in virtual events are related to digital event burnout, which I think we're all feeling a little bit just sitting on Zoom all day long every day for the past couple of years here. And the difference between the initial energy and excitement around digital events compared to where we are now. And so it's hard to know what of that is just like cultural effect because of the you know massive initial spike and the, the kind of forced uncomfortable situation that we've all been in for so long. I think it's going to even out quite a bit, but my instinct says that the things that are missing from these experiences are the personal elements. Like, I think it's very easy, you know, let's imagine a remote hackathon or even the fellowship is actually probably an example of a solution to this problem, but let's talk about a remote hackathon. In all likelihood, you probably are going to participate with people who you already know. You may be all participating from home remotely and separately. And the number of interaction points that you have with other attendees at these hackathons to build your network, learn about what they're working on, and engage with a mentor who might help you find your first job when you graduate, whatever it might be, that those are significantly more difficult to create those moments versus in an in-person hackathon where we're all in this same physical space under 24 to 36 hours, there's a lot of moments where those kinds of magic sparks can fly. Now, in the fellowship, we did address this on some level because we organized people into cohorts. We call it a pod. It's somewhere between four and 10 people who go through the 12-week journey together. You don't know any of those people before you start, and they become effectively your teammates for your project, as well as just your network helping to support you as you're learning to contribute open source. And as part of that, we do things like 
having every single person in one of those pods do a one-on-one with every other person in the pod. I'm teaching them how to, in the remote world where we're not going to have the serendipity of the water cooler, be able to build those relationships that ultimately are one of the most special parts of these types of experiences. And I think that creating sustainable structures around helping people build those relationships and really have those personal elements not get lost in our digital events is the thing that we all need to figure out. And again, I think we've found some interesting structures with things like the fellowship, which are more cohort-based and present some of those opportunities. But I'm really interested to see how that shakes out for virtual hackathons or workshops or any other event format that may not translate as well to the longer-term cohort-based type relationships. I think that's the thing I would be most concerned about is how we keep virtual events personal. The big question I always ask about virtual events is why wouldn't I participate asynchronously if I had the option? What is the actual draw to be there when the event is going on? And if there isn't one, then it probably doesn't need to exist as a standalone thing. We run an event series called Global Hack Week, which happens six times a year. And it's a week long coding celebration. You know, you have workshops, you have challenges, you have fun, you know, events like the drawful where you get online and just like play games with other people. And it is explicitly designed to be a live event because most of the interactions that you have and most of the content is ephemeral. It's something that you show up for, you participate in actively. And if you're not there, you're not going to get the same value out of it. And I think that's what most virtual conferences are missing is some kind of like ephemerality that is valuable because frankly, like if there's not something live to participate in and be involved with, I'd much rather just watch that conference talk on my own when I'm like sitting in bed, not during a work day. There needs to be some kind of live draw. You just talked about your major concerns, talked about the major questions. We are coming up on time. So to end on a high note, what are you most excited about? in the next like six months or a year? What's really just waking you up in the morning? I mean, I think the thing I'm most excited about is this idea that opportunity is becoming more well distributed on a global scale. And I know that sounds like really buzzwordy to say, but I think that one of the things that we've seen in the transition to virtual events is that people are participating from a much wider variety of places. We have fellows from 30 countries that basically every continent except Antarctica because it's only researchers there. Now, that leads to a situation where you have people who are not in tier one tech markets. They're not in San Francisco or London or New York. They're in Lagos, which has its own tech ecosystem, but certainly you're not getting paid San Francisco salaries for the most part. And it leads to people there getting the exact same learning opportunity as someone who is going to Stanford. And that creates a situation where they can create their own path. And they're just as smart as everyone else. They just don't have access to the same kinds of jobs or opportunities. And so if you give them access to the learning opportunities and the network, which is a really underestimated in part of starting a tech career, then they'll be able to to kind of level up and do things that may not have been accessible to them before. And I think that's one of the biggest benefits of remote work in general, but also of remote learning and especially remote networking through things like the fellowship where you're working with people in a lot of different places is that people start to build things and and really gain access to opportunities they never would have otherwise encountered. 
I think previously the stars had to align for you to join our community in a lot of ways, right? You had to know about the event that was happening on campus. You'd have to meet to get there. You needed to not have a job on the weekend so that you could actually you know, be able to show up. You had to have the confidence to go there potentially alone or with a bunch of strangers or you're just meeting for the first time. We had to believe that you'd be able to, to not only be successful in the event after spending 24 to 36 hours there, but also that so you had the skills to solve whatever problem that you were going to set out to solve. And today, anybody in the world, no matter who you are, where you're located, what your background is, you can join our community and literally any weekend of the year. We literally run a digital event every single week, full year round. And that's powerful. I think that's really powerful. And it does open up. It's like it's democratizing access to these types of opportunities is the truth. I think for me, the thing that I'm really excited about right now is we're gearing up for our largest class of fellowship ever this summer. When we started this in summer of 2020, we didn't know what was going to happen. It was something that we were hearing from our community. We heard from our partners, there's interest, and we were able to create this new program that as soon as we got to the end of it, we knew we had found something special. And every single batch that we've been running, I continue to have that same wow moment where I look at what we're doing and I look back on where we were just the previous batch and how quickly things are growing and changing. And this summer, we easily could have what effectively equates to one of the largest tech internship type experiences in the world going on, all focused on open source, which frankly is effectively unheard of in the world. And I think that ultimately is an opportunity for us to not only help empower a huge number of people who are going to look back on that experience and think about it as transformational in their career, but we're also helping to shift the mindset around how we think about open source on an early career technologist journey and how we make it a part of their you know default tool belt coming online. And I think that makes me really excited every time I stop and think about it. I really do think that today is the best day to be a new developer coming online is the truth. And every day from here, it just keeps getting better. Love it. Love it so much. Thank you. That is awesome. Listeners, that's about the time we have for today. You can find more about John. Uh, he has a Twitter, John Marco and Swift. He has a Twitter, which is Swift Alpha One, all spelled out. You can also go to MLH.io or fellowship.mlh.io to go check out these programs and check out where you can go sign up and go hack this weekend if you so choose, which is awesome. But don't leave yet. We have the other part of the show. This is where we get to Spotlight, where we talk about really cool things and people that have helped us along the way. Spotlights today. Ben, who is your spotlight? Thankfully, I've just had to invent a word for this. So I'm going to spotlight what I'm going to call from this point on a Yagtizid which is yet another give to your software dependencies website. So I'm just going to give a shout out to thanks.dev, which is a project by, I think it's Ali Nezat. Sorry, Ali, if I pronounced that incorrectly. But yeah, another website that has launched recently that enables you to support your software dependencies, current support for JavaScript and Rust, soon looking to add Python, PHP, Golang, Objective-C, Ruby, Java, Scala, .NET, et al., yeah, check it out. I'm just glad that there are more of these types of websites that exist on a monthly basis. Hopefully we'll get towards daily at some point soon. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, that Deb. Justin Dorfman. While I don't code that much anymore, I got to say, there is this, if you use a Mac, go to fig.io, F-I-G, and it's like your terminal reimagined. It's like VS Code style autocomplete, and it speeds up finding things. So... Yeah, fig.io. Thank you. 
Mine is Yuri Goldstein. Yuri was my mentor. He got me into open source. He is the nicest developer I know in a sea of nice developers. I just love this guy so much. And he has gone on to mentor thousands of other people with this thing called the Guild, which he founded. If you're into GraphQL, Meteor, or Apollo, go check out Yuri's stuff. And just try and meet the guy. He's just so pleasant to be around. And I just love his joie de vivre. He's also been a mentor at various hackathons, probably at MLH ones. So Yuri is the best. A Swift. So I'm actually going to shout out a project from a company called Vercel called Next.js. So my background is when I got started my career as an engineer, I was in the Rails ecosystem. And one of the things I loved about Rails in particular is that often convention is the uh, driving force behind you know, how you get things done. Whereas in the JavaScript ecosystem in general, there's a lot of different ways to accomplish the same solutions to different problems. And so you end up with a lot less consistency across them. One of the things I love about Next.js in particular is they have this examples repo or folder inside the repo that has a ton of examples that they are very well maintained on how to do popular integrations between Next.js and basically every other JavaScript library you could think of. I think this, when you're building a project that you're looking to get beginners into using, having not only tons of examples, but keeping super high quality ones that you treat with the same level of version control that you treat to your production level code for the library, I think is an incredibly powerful best practice. So I'd say for anybody learning next or just wants a good inspiration for how to create a, a resource for your open source project that helps beginners get started, I might check out that examples folder in the Next.js repo. Awesome. Thank you. I'd actually like to shout out Shano, a specific maintainer that has been supporting people. So we had a partner of ours, Royal Bank of Canada, come to us and be like, hi, like we have this obscure Jupyter Lab Git extension that we love, but we haven't been able to find the maintainer and we really want to like sponsor fellows to work on his project. And we cold emailed this guy, Frederick Cullenval, which I'm probably mispronouncing his name. And he responded in like, the most enthusiastic gung-ho way about helping new contributors and really getting involved. And he ended up being like, for someone we had never met before, an incredible mentor. He gave people all of this really fantastic feedback. He gave people all of these really good like learning resources, helped people understand his stack, how Jupyter worked, how Git worked, all of this really in-depth knowledge from years of being a professional software engineer. And the fellows ended up like making some real contributions to the project and it's getting used by thousands of developers out there. And uh, there's a lot of other maintainers like that. I probably don't have time to list them all, but he was someone that stuck out to me in particular for enthusiastically responding to a cold email and turning out to be an incredible mentor. Love that. Swift, John, it's been great having you on. Thank you so much. I wish all the best for Major League Hacking and all of the people you are supporting through your awesome work. Please keep it up. Listeners, if you have any thoughts, please throw them at us. Do so on Twitter or by email, sustainoss.org. Always looking to hear more about how we can make the world more sustainable, especially through things that help lift other people up. Like it sounds like MLH is doing an awesome job at. So thank you again so much for coming on, Swift and John. Take care. Thanks, Swift.